Shut up and sit down. Welcome. Welcome back to In the Context of Empire. Uh, my name is John Lancaster, and I'm joined, as always, with Matt McKenna. Matt, give a hey. How's everyone doing out there? Um, and hey. we have a very, very special guest today, and we are honored to have him on, Stephen Semler, who is the co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here this evening. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Um, so just to start us off, can you give us a quick background in terms of your think tank, Spry, and kind of the purpose of it, what it does? Sure. I mean, I think generally it's good to start with just a definition of what think tanks are. Think tanks, I mean, and I'm citing the official definition here, are groups of nerds who get together <laughs> and fancy themselves good at one policy or if the think tank is big enough, sets entire sets of policies. And they crank out basically policy guidance for government to consider. And the research that think tanks produce, because they have such a close relationship with Congress, matters a whole lot. So in the aggregate, I started my think tank because I just found the establishment think tank community in D.C. to be woefully inadequate and, most importantly, funded by weapons manufacturers. So we went purely with a grassroots model. We went with a working class approach to security. Basically, just everything that an establishment think tank does, we did the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And um you know, we, we spoke about this a little bit before the podcast, but both Matt and I are very big fans of your speaking security newsletter blog. Um, and we've talked about this on this podcast quite a bit, which is, you know, defense spending. And I think just I think that's kind of where we would like to start is just the defense spending bill. So, you know, right now, our defense budget is is well over $700 billion. And obviously, this doesn't account for the supplemental funding, the Department of Homeland Security. And this actually is something that you, I remember, fairly recently published uh, something in your newsletter about this. Uh, would you be able to give us kind of a, an accurate number of how much we actually spend on defense and kind of where does this money go? Yeah, so as far as DOD's budget proper and what we say of how much we spend on defense, it's broken up into two different accounts, basically. There's the base budget, which occupies most of it, and then there's the overseas contingency operations account budget, which is like provides yearly. I mean, depends which year. Last year was $10 billion in additional funding to fund overseas contingency operations, which sounds like a backpacking trip through Europe, um, <laughs> but was initially called global war on terror operations. And when Obama took office, he renamed it to overseas contingency operations. Mm -hmm. So that sort of broadened and deepened what this account could do. So now it's basically a slush fund. So we have defense, uh, overseas contingency operations or OCO. Um, and that's sort of like DOD, when people say the defense budget, that's sort of what they mean. And for the 740.5 billion figure that you hear like tossed around, that includes Department of Energy funding. So that that uh for nuclear programs mm -hmm. so that's authorized through the defense national defense authorization act yearly but it's ultimately implemented by department of energy so that's an additional like usually like five to ten billion it's, a, it's like a relatively actually probably higher actually much higher than that like 20 to 30 billion usually that adds to the base plus the ogo and then if you want to go into the security budget as a whole then you 
can like add in the State Department programs that are affiliated with the Department of Defense, um, Department of Homeland Security. Um, it really depends how deep you want to go. And if you add in FBI, police, the amount we spend on prisons, you get around like 1.2 trillion yeah. annually in terms of national security spending. Yeah, it's funny uh, yeah, go ahead. what you're saying uh, about Obama changing the name to overseas contingencies. It's amazing what can get done just with the language when you phrase things in, in a more sanitized way. I mean, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about the defense budget. You know, America doesn't right. go to war for defense. America pretty exclusively goes to war for offensive reasons. So I, I, I do think that that's something we try to get across in our classrooms as well. I know it's easy to get hung up on the language, but it matters. It matters that Obama calls it that. Uh, and it matters that we're even talking about it as defensive. You know, it, it was only the Department of Defense since World War II. And it was the department, right. much more accurately, the Department of War. And it's almost, it was almost refreshing when it was describing what it actually did, as opposed to we have this convoluted idea where up is down, black is white, um, where we call it the defense budget. And of course, sanitizes what that money really is going toward. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in terms of like, we're also kind of interested in the private contractor bit of it. Do we know like how much of this goes toward private contractors? Yeah. Uh, so you look at DOD's base budget plus OCO, um, around half half of is it is delegated out to half of it so if you think that's right it's wild. <laughs> so you're so you're so you're thinking like okay now we're in the neighborhood of like 350 billion dollars awarded to the private sector right to do everything i mean every possible task that the u.s military does is fulfilled by contractors pretty much and keep in mind that the u.s military has dramatically increased the scope of operations, especially during the Iraq war, where it wasn't just shock and awe and occupation. It was like rebuilding institutions. It was assisting in humanitarian relief. Mm. It was doing all, all sorts of like activities. And even like the cooking and cleaning is performed routinely by contractors. So this is where like the contracts bit, which I'm glad you brought up is, is useful. And if we're talking about language too, I mean, once you, consider contracts the describing the military industrial complex as a complex is become sort of inadequate because what we're really talking about are two separate economies going on between the war economy which is state protected i mean this is just like this is this is a nationalized system socialized and the non-war economy which gets austerity deregulation no state protections mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think that you're you're onto something too with the uh, once again with the language because we call them contractors, right? But that that does encompass a whole a whole lot of different tasks ranging from you know most of us are probably familiar with the Blackwater mercenary. I don't think they call themselves Blackwater anymore. Uh, yeah. I know John, you you covered quite a bit of that stuff, uh, and of course you know the uh, Scahill has that great book about the the Blackwater mercenaries. But so. We're ranging from actual mercenaries to contractors doing all kinds of things like cooking and cleaning. And often it's used, this word contractor, The it kind of sanitizes what these wars are doing because we talk about the deaths from the war and terror. And I think it's roughly 6,700 or so, 6,800 American troops have died. But that 
leaves out a pretty large number. And the number is about twice that for Americans killed in the war on terror when you start factoring in uh, contractors who've been killed. And of course, that does include some mercenaries, but it includes a lot of people doing stuff like cooking, cleaning, uh, just the basic tasks that are needed to, you know, in Iraq, in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, rebuild the countries that we destroyed and also just maintain a military presence there. And of course, it's not just Americans. People, my wife is from the Philippines uh, and her, you know, there's many, many stories of Filipinos going to Iraq, going to Afghanistan, going to to these places that America has destroyed and then working as labor there. And of course, the reality is that sometimes they get killed there. They get caught in the crossfire. So thank you for elaborating on what contracting actually means in this case. Oh, an interesting point, just to quickly add on to what you're saying. Um, so the U.S. was, as you may have remembered, just very slow to acknowledge that it had troops in Syria, like during the Obama administration. The first like solid indication from a government source, like directly from the government source, published resource uh, that confirmed that we had troops on the ground was actually Department of Labor report, uh, because Department of Labor is legally obligated to post where contract federal contractors have died defense or otherwise and they reported once for syria so that was like the first verification we had that there were actually boots on the ground right because we never had to report the uh the quote-unquote moderate rebels that got killed uh that, that we were funding since what 2012 or so and that, that those don't factor into the 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 american calculus but once americans start getting killed of course that now we have a trail of evidence <laughs> it's like i think that's how we found out that americans were occupying Niger as well, right? When I think it was when Americans finally started getting killed, all these Americans were like, what What the hell are Americans doing in Niger? And it's similar. What the hell are Americans doing in Syria? <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, it takes the American deaths for these questions even to be asked. Yeah, I think right. the I think it's really important to know like the, the different roles that these contractors play. Like Matt, you're talking about like restructuring Afghanistan, being, being left up to, to private contractors in some bits. Um, but what are, what would you say are some of the worst offenders? Obviously there are, there are these big names, but what are the worst offenders of, uh, you know, these private contractors trying to sway budgets and policy in their favor? Um, and like, who are they, are they targeting politicians in particular? Are they targeting others in particular? So who, who are these private contractors that like are the worst offenders of this and who are they trying to sway? Um, okay. So to start with, who are the main players in sort of the defense contracting world? The names of like the names of the companies I'm about to list. It's, I mean, these are also the leading federal contractors. Mm-hmm. So, which makes sense because DODs has the most money, gives out the most contracts. Right. So, the, those companies that to keep in mind are Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamic, uh, Boeing, and that's. And there's like other ones too. The problem is it's hard to keep track of because they keep eating each other. Yeah. So over time, there's just been this starting in, I think the nineties, like post cold war drawdown, they just started eating each other and they've just become like, I mean, now DOD has this um, sort of thing about a competitive bid, but it's just usually one or two huge companies competing over it and spending tons of money doing it. And as far as like how much money they give to Congress, um, there's really two ways to look at it. The first is sort of like on an individual like member level where these donations actually like do lead to a change in behavior, maybe by a member of Congress. Right. 
to vote one way or, or another. Um, but as a whole, I think a good way to understand it is because um, defense contractors donate to Republicans and Democrats just about evenly, like this year, in terms of campaign contributions, about 13 million each for Republicans and Democrats. I really view it as sort of not the, like the military industrial complex or war industry backing sort of uh, like one horse over another, but using the donations to sort of set the limits on acceptable debate over the defense budget. So if you ask like a think tank who takes defense industry cash, what they would spend on defense versus another think tank who does, they might give you different answers, but you basically know what they're going to say. They're going to say something higher than 700 billion and lower than a trillion. Right. And, and of course the, you talk about limiting the conversation. And I, I think that's really important to say because, you know, you bring up this stuff, uh, you know, to skeptical people like who, you know, I've had people accuse me of like conspiratorial thinking. It's like, what, what do you think there, there's a cabal of people who keep the United States at war to which my answer is yes, but not in the way that you're describing. It's, it's the, every industry finds a way to justify its existence. And the arms industry is, of course, no different. Uh, and if you need to justify your existence, you need to convince the United States government that, well, we, you know, there's always the threat of Russia. There's always the threat of uh, China invading the South China Sea. <laughs> you know, there's always the threat of terrorism. And, you know, we, we can never, we can never uh, defend enough against terrorism. And it's, it's not this, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not this thing where people are plotting in back rooms. It's just people uh, accept the reality that benefits them and people promote a reality that benefits them. So it's th it's not that they're plotting. It's that they, they honestly believe that this is true. But it's amazing that people find a way to believe to believe in a truth that somehow manages to benefit them. Right. So they don't honestly think they're plotting and conspiring to keep the United States at war. It's just that they don't think any other way. Uh, and, and maybe maybe you agree, disagree with that. But the, that's kind of my read on it, it's not this conspiracy. It's just basic uh, capitalist survival. You got to justify your why people why you need to keep being given money. Right. I mean, there was an article or like probably a couple written like within the last week where it's basically saying that defense contractors aren't really concerned about this election because they view their markets as a growth industry. So they just posted their third quarter earnings, Northrop Grumman had like, like beat a record, like during the pandemic, which is just wild. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it, it's interesting because regarding conspiracies, like I've heard that too. And I sort of like, I sort of roll my eyes at it a bit because it's like, no, this is way too boring. <laughs> and like roots, it's, it, it's like uh, become routine. I mean, this is like an annual thing. I mean, it's like, president releases his budget, lobbyists lobby like hell, and donate to re-election campaigns and sort of cultivate this sort of environment. And, you know, it's interesting because like think tanks that take defense industry cash, I often ask myself, like, would they hire me? And the answer is no, because mm -hmm. it's I'm too beyond the pale for what the level of acceptable discourse is in their environment. And part of that's defense industry contributions, but also that everyone else is taking defense industry contributions in order to be taken seriously by everyone else, you have to speak in their language. Yeah. So 
it's like imagine me going into like a room where they're talking about like like very like going line by line saying like oh how could we produce savings by cutting this legacy program and i come in and i like kick down the door and i say no ignore line by line cut half of it force dod to make changes yeah. by itself there's no really need for congress to get involved i mean for legal for legal authorizations yeah they need to be repealed but i think ideally it's just sort of a blanket cut where dod is basically forced to make its own sort of budgetary decisions yeah because if they complain about congress then here fine here's the authority to do it you know go for it you know it's funny uh, yeah oh sorry it's it's just funny how the uh the kind of limits on the conversation that you're talking about that that this place is it's so funny how that even affects like our classrooms in particular and even what we do on this podcast like we're always saying like what we are doing currently is radical. Like the spending that we do in the military and the defense is radical. Like no other country is doing this. We, this is radical. And yet that, it, it, like you're saying, is like almost out of bounds to even propose that what we're doing is, is <laughs> too much. Yeah, it's right. funny, John. Uh, speaking of radical, so John and I, we teach the same class. So today we just had, or and yesterday we had the kids look over like, different platforms from the presidential candidates. And we included the libertarian party and the green party. And I had more than one kid like comment on the green party. Like it just seems like they're extreme. And and, uh, with the thing that they pointed to is they want to get rid of all nuclear weapons. I'm like, what's more extreme? The fact that we have 6,000 weapons that can destroy the planet that wipe out city can wipe cities off the map that we're the only country that's ever used them. Most of the humanities uh, countries do not have nuclear weapons. <laughs> like we're extreme for having 6,000 of them. Like it just like have some context. And of, of course I, I joked around with them about it, but, but uh, it's like that word extreme the, and radical, it, it never gets a plot. It ne- we never really think about how extreme we are, you know, having the, this ridiculous budget, having the most nuclear weapons, 800 bases around the world. But the other thing I realize I misspoke and uh, I think you uh, I, from what you've written, Stephen, I, I, I believe you have an article about this. Like I said, uh, they're acting in a very in the way any capitalist institution acts. Actually, it's more accurate that they're very much getting welfare from the government, right? That the these companies they're not really competing in what you know these free market types would call like a uh, cap a perfect uh, capitalistic. Uh, uh, realm of competition, but they're actually, yeah, like you said before, there's not a lot of competition. Uh, they get the contracts over and over again. Uh, they are literally taking government handouts. And uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Like the, you know, the way that we, that conservatives and, and often liberals as well, will there's this shame, uh, public shaming of, uh, of taking government money of, of being a quote unquote welfare recipient. And, we never apply it to these huge companies that just get billion dollar government handouts. And I, I wonder if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. Uh, well, just first off, uh, I, I think there's for like the system level you're talking about as a process, it's a very, it's a socialized state run process, but as far what you were saying, I, I agree with uh, in terms of invoking capitalism because it necessitates finding opportunities for growth. So defense industries as corporations looking to expand markets will push for us empire you know it provides sort of like the capitalist force behind it and i i believe it's mostly like a historical inertia plus like 
sort of a, a very peculiar self-assured benevolence that uh, leads the U.S. to think that its security is the world's security and to fancy themselves as sort of these moral, the U.S. itself as a moral agent, while, you know, Russia, China, you know, they are irrational actors, they're violent, they violate international norms. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> but I mean, as far, but, but getting back to the question, sorry for that digression. I mean, as far as the language of welfare is concerned, you even saw it sort of drop off when the stimulus checks were delivered. Right. I don't think anyone stood on their front porch and burned their stimulus check and saying, I ain't no welfare queen. <laughs> you know, I, I zero cases of that. So it's really, I don't really know what to make of it. I think it, it could be a conservative thing where it's sort of like, it's, it's on the individual and corporations because they employ individuals are somehow like granted like different levels of like being supported, but other companies aren't treated the same way. I mean, and this is really kind of, it's an abusive industry because like they constantly overcharge the products are, I mean, some of them are meant to explode. So they're no dividends at all socially <laughs> and immense CEO salaries. And I wish that, you know, I wish defense contractors were held in the same sort of esteem in the overall discourse of inequality popularized by the Occupy movement, Bernie Sanders, the, uh, the squad in the Congress who invoke salaries of Wall Street, of big pharma, but defense contractor CEO salaries are up there in terms of dollar amount, but it's also way more pub, um, publicly subsidized because it's direct. I mean, it's literally most of these companies' revenue comes from public funds while Wall Street, you know, uh, Big Pharma, they might get massive breaks in an occasional contract or whatever. But I mean, defense, I mean, defense CEO salaries are one of the most purest form of like state run inequality that there is. Yeah. And it's even more sinister uh, than the other industries you mentioned, even though they those industries are sinister and they they create terrible policy. And, you know, we'll get into how they fund think tanks and and all the ways they influence congressional decision making. But we're re really talking about I, I saw you posted something about, I think, either the Raytheon or Lockheed Martin CEO. Uh, they make like $19 million a year or something crazy like that. And what are they making money? For? Like, what are they doing to make the world a better place? I'm like, not that I'm not that John or I are so uh, uh, ignorant that we think that making the world a better place is what people get paid for, but $19 million to do, to essentially create a permanent warfare state to, to forever increase the risk of a global confrontation where we might not, the globe, the earth's people might not survive. They're, they're not, you know, you'd be hard pressed to make an argument that the CEO of Raytheon is, is, uh, is doing anything positive for the world. Um, and I think part of it is like the, the reason it's not brought up. So you brought up some politicians that, uh, I respect. And I know John respects, uh, you talked about Bernie Sanders before the podcast, you mentioned AOC, uh, you know, I'm a fan of the the squad. I think they they have some awesome ideas domestically. But you're right; they don't talk that much about foreign policy. And when they do, often they fall for, or, or I don't know. I'm assuming they fall for like just kind of 
defense industry talking points. Like they'll still kind of assume the the need to talk about Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela as these evil countries. And basically they're doing the rhetorical work for people who do want to make war on those countries. And there's, there is not enough talk about our own defense industry, our own war making. And, you know, it would, and you're right, it would fit in so well with their discussion of wall street. If you factored in the weapons industry. And I know, I, I think Bernie's done a little bit of it. I ha- I could be wrong. I haven't heard too much of it from the other members of the squad. Uh, and uh, John, they, they, or, uh, feel free to correct me on that. They, yeah, Sanders' uh, in, like interest in the defense industry, I think, started after 2016, so during the Trump administration. Um, he's been probably the best at it. I don't even think he's particularly great at it. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, as far as like the votes I looked at for defense spending, which I think are sort of like, if you want to tackle root causes of foreign policy, you look at defense spending. They've, the squad has voted perfectly, at least for the votes that I've looked at. And, you know, granted, small number, but also at the same time, and they voted, you know, for the amendment to cut defense, they've made statements on it. But I think in order for them to be as transformative for the institution itself, they need to I mean, basically introduce some really uncomfortable legislation where it's basically barring their colleagues from taking defense industry cash. And to do so, they themselves would have to reject all defense industry cash. And they haven't. They're not exactly, I mean, they're far from leaders. They're usually in like the bottom quartile in terms of, you know, money accepted from the war industry. But I mean, they got to do more, you know? I mean, they're our best shot. And if this was like a discussion, including the squad, I would be very friendly about this and be honest that like, yeah, like y'all are best shot. So, (laughs) I mean, this is how like you, you go from like good progressive and foreign policy to fucking legend overnight is that you establish at least the bill wouldn't pass to bar, you know, defense industry cash from ending up in members of Congress's, you know, campaign pockets, but a social norm would be established. And because these people, especially AOC, they're political juggernauts. So that get, they popularize that sort of discourse. And suddenly, like, you know, we're talking about real issues in foreign policy that help them in what they're after domestically, because it, it speaks to that same class theme. And, and, uh, and just so people know, like this idea that you have to take defense money, that the defense industry is uh, – de facto a a part of our society that that is respected and receives tremendous funds that needs to change culturally too and and it, it was not always this way like after world war 1 the the defense companies that you know they weren't making the same kind of weapons as they do now but the companies that were making weaponry they were shamed publicly that you know they were calling them the merchants of death uh, there was talk about nationalizing the defense industry so it doesn't have to be this given that politicians have to take money from the def- defense industry. And it's good to hear that they are uh, some of the, the squad I'm referring to are are better on these issues. But you're right. The, it, how much would that mean if they they took a public stand like that? You know, the old Democratic Party could be pushed out entirely. The Chuck Schumer's, Joe Biden's, uh, you know, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton's that these people are old. They're, there's a young, you know, AOC is tremendously popular, especially in this area. Uh, and, you know, there's potential there for sure. Yeah, I think the other thing is, I mean, 
in terms of Congress's impact here, I know we talked a little bit about both Democrats and Republicans accepting, I think you said 13 million each in, in lobbying mm-hmm. funds. Um, but you know, we're, you're right where a policy or an attempted policy that, that limited how much they could take or, you know, something like that, it could have an effect. And I think, I think it's, uh, you know, been renamed a bit. I don't know if you feel that it should be like military industrial congressional complex because of how Congress kind of plays in, into all of it. But there's also one other point that you mentioned earlier, and it's something that we talk about a lot, which is kind of America being like the arbiter of morality around the world and seeing it like uh, almost playing like they are the moral posture to, to look up to. And that we, t- and again, kind of relating it back to our classes, we talk a lot about like American exceptionalism, kind of like people believing in the uniqueness of, of America, whether that be to, to be the moral arbiter or not. And I'm kind of curious what you think that that role plays like is that a a prevalent mindset how does that play into um, the defense spending and our interventions worldwide i think uh its main effect is reducing the capacity for accountability not only from like the people you know like the cheneys and the bushes but also just like an inability to reflect culturally on like what we're doing abroad, like we're sort of in a, sy- a system now where the American public believes, okay, so first off the U S military, like the U S military is the most trusted institution in the U S mm. and according to public polling, Americans are more likely to trust a general than they are their own doctor, you know? So that's sort of the wow. situation I've never we're heard at. That. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's wild. And I, I think public opinion in foreign policy isn't, it's factored in to considerations of like policymakers, leaders as something that has to be cultivated in support of a policy idea that was formulated without the public's consent. And I mean, I guess that's true for everything, but there is very little room for public to engage on these topics just because so much information is classified so much is, is uh, dispersed through like basically public relations spending. I mean, DOD spends more on public relations spending than any other agency by far Uh, flyovers, you know Um, (laughs) I guess I'm struggling with this question a bit just because uh, like the cultural impacts are just so hard to measure, but I know we're in a situation where the U S knows we have troops abroad knows quote unquote, that we should, you know, support them, but without any context of what they are, like who they are, what they're doing and where they are. So it's, it's sort of a situation where, and I'm not the first to say this, but it's a situation where it's thank you for your service, Mm. dot, 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 whatever that means. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's sort of just empty platitude, which doesn't, it obviously doesn't help the working class in the U.S., which is most of us. And it doesn't help the troops either, because they're sort of like granted like a very small amount of agency as either hero or a dead person or, yeah. you know, wounded warrior or something. Yeah, and I think 
John, your to your point that what work is the American exceptionalism, this assumption of good intentions doing uh, it. And like Stephen, you said that the DOD pours a tremendous amount of resources into ensuring that that uh, belief that the American military is on a noble mission. I mean, I don't think it's still the slogan, but what, what was the Marines old slogan is like a global force for good is something to that effect. Yeah, that was that was the right. Navy's a, a global yeah. force for good where we're not sure if the for good part is like a morality thing or like a temporality <laughs> thing where it's like, oh, for good. Yeah. For good. yeah. yeah so it's for like, good. And then it's like, just look at the facts though. Like, like I, there, there's a new book out. I, I haven't read it yet, uh, but it's by David Vine. It's called the United States of war. And he categorized, I've seen the pr- promo for it. I've heard him interviewed and he talks about how, for 244 years, the United States has been in existence. And for 11 of those years, the United States hasn't been at war. Almost any, you know, he's including all the, the wars against indigenous nations, which were by their very nature offensive wars. Almost every war the United States has ever been in has been a, offensive. Almost every war would be, if we were to hold it up to whether we're talking about just war theory or like the Geneva Convention or, or the United Nations Charter or the Nuremberg Principles, Almost none of them meet the criteria. I mean, they, we can have debates about uh, World War II and the Civil War. Those are always the two that that are a little more controversial. But no, surely no war since uh, since World War II at all comes close to meeting the a defensive war. An aggressive war is illegal by the by the UN Charter. So that you have to have this notion of uh, of we're doing good in the world, and it's just when people at, say that, it's like well. Don't you think that other nations grant themselves this idea that they're doing good in the world? Uh, You know, Russia's in Syria right now. And you you hear about Russia every once in a while. And and occasionally Iran and the Syrian Air Force will bomb a a town in a city. It's like and it's reported and like, uh, you know, X amount of civilians were killed. And it's never reported. Like, why is Russia in Syria? Like, why is Iran in Syria, especially? (laughs) Well, Russia doesn't want, didn't want Syria to be uh, taken by religious extremists, which was the reality of what was going to happen if if Assad had lost the the war. Uh, and he's there. It's also important to remember Russia is in Syria. I'm not defending killing civilians in any capacity, but Russia is in Syria at the invitation of the Syrian government. The United States is not. Iran is in Syria for two reasons: the, a, they were invited by the Syrian government. And B, they don't want a Sunni extremist government on their border or near their border. Uh, so we never grant other countries this idea of good intentions. It's something limited to Americans. And it's like we did this in like one of our first episodes. Just look at the track record. Like what would the United States have to do for you to think they don't have good intentions? Like like let's just take the last 75 years. Drop two atomic bombs. Uh, invade Vietnam, what, kill, you know, depending on your estimate, it's anywhere from two to four million people, then throw in La- Laotians and Cambodians. Uh, we're talking a number that's probably close to five to seven million people, you know, kill one fifth of the Korean population. The Iraq totals are always kind of fuzzy because some some estimates say it's like 300,000. Others say it's two million. Let's put it in. Let's split the difference and say it's one million Iraqis have been killed, 200,000 uh, Afghans torture program, global assassination, this idea of good intentions just doesn't, whatever the intentions, at what point do you stop uh, accepting good intentions and start saying, well, it doesn't matter what your intentions are. 
the results of what the United States has done in the last 75 years, and we could even isolate that just to the war on terror, with no discernible effect, uh, positive effect, and the cost has been millions of lives. And of course, you know a lot about the money that's been sent and it spent, and it seems like the only beneficiary of this is weapons contractors. And uh, yeah. that was a long rant that I just went on, but I, I think John, you're right. Like this idea of good intentions, just it's toxic because it, everyone thinks they have good intentions. Yeah, I think that again goes back to that American exceptionalism point. Like that is the that's the whole thing. It's actually funny because uh, Matt and I were watching the presidential debates when they were on, and we were like taking a look at how foreign policy was was addressed, if at all, which it mainly wasn't. But like the posturing was like not at all talking about the the very rational actions that these other countries take. It's like how hard can we be on Russia? And who which which one of you candidates up there is going to take a harder stance on? every country in the world. <laughs> That's pretty much the discussion. It's never like uh, ha- having a rational conversation about these foreign actors, what they're doing and why. It's more just taking a, a harder line posture against these countries. Um, any thoughts on that, Stephen? Yeah. Um, it was odd. Like When foreign policy came up, I was like, man, I hope we don't get a Hitler reference. And then like <laughs> To, to like 30 seconds later there's like like biden comparing kim jong-un to hitler it's like until you kill six million jews you're not hitler let's just say that uh but i i think one of the things that stood out that feeds into the american exceptionalism point like to the extreme on sort of a programmatic level on the ground is the remark by Biden by saying, by bringing up the bounty, the Russian bounties, yeah. alleged, I guess, I don't really know what status they are. In fact, I don't really, I don't really care. But Biden says, we will basically strike Russia. They will, Russia will pay if they meddle in our affairs. And it, you, our affairs, being in Afghanistan is our affairs, right. you know. Um, and it's interesting because the circumstances of that attack um, in Afghanistan or the alleged bounty gate, I guess you call it, is that the U.S. is there under the guise of security cooperation, namely training and equipping the Afghan army, which we have been doing since like 2004. When it became clear that like Iraq and Afghanistan were going to shit, we started training the indigenous local forces, I should say, (laughs) to build them up. And it's sort of, it, it changed, the U.S. presence changed, especially like 2008, 2009. Um, and in 2010, you saw like a ton of DOD policy documents just suddenly invoke the word cooperation, security cooperation as sort of a central pillar of our national strategy. And what it really is, it's just sort of an extension of counterinsurgency, which is an extension of war, which is war. So the U.S. is in effect waging an intervention in Afghanistan under a PR friendly term, but they advise missions. They still like go out and, you know, special operations forces are still active. Drone strikes, obviously air support. That's sort of, that's sort of like the element of American exceptionalism that really speaks through where the name of the program security cooperation is in fact, something else entirely really i mean there's on the margins it is about training and equipping the afghan forces but it's about u.s presence there it's about imperialism so i'm worried that that sort of like 
And we do that across the globe. Over in 100 countries, we have these missions going on. So suddenly it's like, okay, so now every time, every so we have to strike every buster you know, from any country who comes in and like messes around with our sort of global empire. Like I, I just, it, it just seems like needless. It's a formula for needless escalation under a, a PR friendly guys, under a cooperative guys. And how did like, one of the other things going back to what we're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about like, thanks for your service, whatever that means. And this whole idea of American exceptionalism and also the kind of, what we were talking about the force for good, like, does that mean permanent? And it's kind of assumption that we're just going to continue. Like, that's just how it works is that we're going to continue pouring billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into the defense budget. How do you respond to people? You know, cause I'm assuming people will, will say any, any cut in the defense budget is going to make us less safe. It's attack. It's an attack against the troops with whom they value so much. How do you respond to, to arguments that, you know, cutting, this defense budget would actually would make us less safe. I would say it's it's on a fundamental level it confuses security activities with security outcomes. I mean, so you're gauging security based on how much we spend. That's an act. That isn't an outcome from how much we spend. The outcome from which we spend is endless war. That's the outcome. The act of spending isn't. It has no bearing. On outcomes, it requires such a leap of faith to even say that. And I mean, I think on the the stat that I invoke most when I hear that, especially when it's brought up when saying, "Oh, they're taking money away from our boys in blue." It's like, uh, okay, you know, twenty four cents out of every taxpayer dollar goes to defense. Twelve cents goes to defense contractors, and only five goes to the troops. So these massive corporations basically out-earn troops at an over two-to-one clip every year. So, and the third, the third way I address that question is just, I mean, I can point to, I can recommend cutting about half the DOD budget without really fucking around with capabilities that much. I'm really just cutting like excess empire, the, the space force, Ending endless <laughs> wars, the Oko slush fund. I'm I'm really just targeting waste, fraud, and abuse at this point. It's like I'm I'm barely even talking about the thing you're, they're mentioning. Yeah, and I think we we do want to eventually get kind of your policy recommendations with with the funding. Uh, but sorry, Matt, I, I saw you you wanted to say something. Yeah, just briefly, and and I think everything you just said was very accurate. This idea that you're supporting the troops with the money, and you know you're calling attention to the fact that actually not that much of that money is actually going to the troops, and you know, and then this is like it's almost like I don't know if you're a Simpsons fan. I, I'm a huge fan. I think John watches it occasionally, but there's this episode where they they see one bear in Springfield, and then they hire a huge security force. You know, and they, it's like half the town's budget, right? And obviously, they're lampooning the national defense budget, right? This is in the '90s when there literally was no threat to America. <laughs> So it's like there's fighter jets flying over Springfield and shit like that. And then Homer's outside just talking to his daughter and he said, looks like the bear patrol's working because <laughs> there's no, you know, there's, there's one bear in like 40 years that had been seen in Springfield. And, you know, that's kind of the way they talk about the defense budget. Well, 
look, Russia hasn't invaded the United States. Look, we haven't had a major terrorist attack since 9-11. And it's just like this self-perpetuating uh, justification because because there hasn't been a terrorist attack. Uh, meanwhile, it's like other countries don't, you know, the, you know, Osama bin Laden famously said, like, there's a reason we don't target Sweden, right? It's like, yeah. and that gets me into like, you're, it's also predicated on the assumption that all this defense spending and offensive actions in the world don't ever blow back on us. And it's just so obviously not the case. The, you know, the 9-11, Osama bin Laden was very clear in the 9-11 attacks that it was in response to the facing of American troops in, in Saudi Arabia, the Iraq sanctions, the bombing of Iraq a few times a week, the American support for Israel subjugation. And, but other attacks too, like the Boston Marathon bomber, the Pulse nightclub shooter, the attempted Times Square bomber, they all reference American actions in the world. So, so it's like this idea, this de, fa- de facto assumption that the default assumption that the, that the defense budget is keeping us safer is not true and doesn't stand up to, to if you just inspect the actual acts of terrorism that have happened on America, it's making us less safe, not more safe. So that's, that's something important to remember. It's like the, our actions around the world, which we're spending this money on, often blow back on us. And we're very fortunate that they haven't blown back in a serious way since 9-11. Yeah. And also going back to like that, this kind of cultural phenomenon, I also am curious about like Matt and I have had debates (laughs) whether the draft or like a mandatory service should come in because Basically, the whole discussion is that there is a divide, kind of going back to like, thanks for your service, whatever that means. There's kind of a divide of like what actually happens with the military versus like the general public's perception of what happens. And that also, I think, goes with funding. Like people don't really know where this money goes. They just think it's good. It'll keep them safe, etc. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if, Matt, you share this opinion, but like I am of the opinion that uh, there's there's a pretty big divide amongst like the general public and the military in terms of funding actions, like they're almost deliberately kept separate, especially after like Vietnam and the draft went sideways for them, right? With, with a uh, public outcry. Um, so I don't know, Steve, do you think like there is a divide and if so, like, what do we do about it or is it okay? Just so I'm on pace with the question, you're talking about civil military relations divide right. in terms of one. Yeah. Uh, the way I break it down usually in terms of civil military relations is just is is through a class perspective. So I just just look at like, okay, who are the of the current arrangement as it stands, who's left out and who's included? And I I think there the US military was professionalized in nineteen seventy four, which means the draft was like no right. longer a thing. Which I think is the same year that Major League Baseball introduced the designated hitter, which is interesting. <laughs> or around the same time, because it really sort of captures the, the notion of the sort of the civil military divide, where it's like you have a specialized, professionalized group of people who li- are living very different lives, not just by virtue of what they do, but also by the stuff they have to worry about. They don't really have; um, they're in a state-protected system. Mm. Um, so I, I think to an extent there is a divide uh, going on in terms of closing that divide in terms of like burden sharing and the cost of war, the draft is one option and taxation is the other. 
So no war since Vietnam has been offset by a corresponding tax increase. Mm. And the one there was like one, like a few years after, like in the 2000s, after the start of the Iraq war is like the shared sacrifice act that was introduced in Congress. It didn't even like, it was just deferred to committee. It didn't even like come to the floor. It was like that unpopular. So closing that gap, I mean, I, I really think, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what the the route here is to go because we want people to care about it. But at the same time, like, I mean, if I was drafted, I like would find an excuse not to go. Oh yeah. I mean, if, if Me I was, you know, I'm I got totally, flat feet. like, <laughs> yeah, I got flat feet. I got bone spurs. I got bone spurs on top of my flat feet. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, I can't even crawl. Right. Uh, <laughs> but either way, you're talking about either through taxation or the draft, you're talking about, two ways that the government really can intimately react with people like it's electorate through taxes and through a mandatory federal service. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I, I think like getting to that point, I, just to close it off. I mean, I, I think getting to that point, I think those two are on the right track in that they're politicizing the hell out of something that is thought to stand above politics. However, I'm just iffy on both of them. And I think through this, through my think tank, by just talking relentlessly about who wins and who loses, who national security is actually for, then I, I think we just have to mess around with different class arguments until we find the right one that doesn't produce outcomes such as like levying taxes on everyone right. to pay for a war or instituting you know, a draft. Yeah. Well, before I comment, John, I, I, you, you mentioned that we might disagree, and I'm not sure how much we actually disagree on this, but but I know you've mentioned in the past that you might, you know, be pro selective service, pro draft. Uh, why don't you explain your rationale behind that, or, or maybe I'm characterizing your position? Yeah, wrong. I think, I, like Steve, I'm also kind of iffy on like the solution. Like, I do think there there is a divide. Um, but you know. Steve brings up a good point or that the, the taxation point, but again, the general argument, I think from, from those who make that argument, and I don't know if I fully accept it, but I entertain it, which is essentially when kind of the general public is forced to, um, to either be invested in what's going on in foreign relations or, you know, have loved ones that are involved intimately with what's going on. It forces kind of, people to be responsive to what happens. So I think there's often kind of like a reaction, which is like, I'm not in the military, you know, right now, half of half of a percent of the U S populations in the military. So it's like, I don't really know anyone personally. Uh, I don't think that's like in the military who is currently in the military. People that I know are, are out now. And so I think folks who are in that kind of boat don't really care what happens, right? They, they don't really care too much because it doesn't really affect them. And I think those who argue for a mandatory draft or some type of mandatory service are the, under the impression that if people cared, people would see this issue very clearly, like what the hell are we doing? Um, and take, take action about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think there's, I mean, again, I mean, taxation, I mean, in terms of like getting people's attention for something, I mean, that's, that's really an effective way to do it. But I, also, in terms of the taxes we already are paying, I mean, 
at what point would you sort of like invoke an additional tax, you know? Because if we're already spending like, the issue is really just complicated. What I'm trying to say is that the issue is complicated by the fact that we're now sort of in a permanent war state and our budget's higher than at any point since the Korean War since I think like 2009 or 10 or something like that, except for one time, you know? So this posture of sort of like, again, we're not really fighting to win any wars. We're just sort of like managing the globe through this unproven or, I mean, through the system that doesn't have any sort of tangible positive benefits, as Matt said. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would probably, I, I probably think, my weakest answer so far. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> I don't think uh, there's any clear answer on that one. Oh hell no! I guess we don't disagree that much, John, because I, I do fundamentally agree that the the American people are very disconnected from the wars that we fight, and you know I. This is present, like, if you ask the average person, American, like, where is the United States at war at the moment? Most Americans are not going to be able to answer that question. Like that, like, point uh, to Afghanistan is, is a, you know, point to Iraq. That's that's a struggle, I'm, I'm assuming, for many people. It is. And um, I just, I think I disagree on the your solution just because the, uh, the draft implies that it's going to be regular Americans that... Uh, bear the cost of going to war. And um, I, I do think that regular Americans should be aware of the cost of war, but it's, uh, I mean, I, I would do a top down kind of thing, right? Like the, you know, if you look at the numbers, not a whole lot of like sons and daughters of Congress people are serving in these wars. Uh, one of the only things that's kind of a dark thought I had a few weeks ago was, you know, Joe Biden's son served in Iraq and most people, uh, the doctors uh, would say that he, his death, his cancer death was due to the burn pits in Iraq. And, you know, that's horrible. And, and I, I do sympathize with that particular aspect of Joe Biden's life. But isn't it the reality that if more Congress uh, people, senators and, and, and uh, people in the House of Representatives actually felt the cost of war, that we wouldn't have this disconnect, we wouldn't have this uh, imperial posture around the world where where it's, it is mostly uh, working class people that serve and die in these wars. Uh, and of course, it, we're not even calculating the cost, which is far greater of the poor people in other countries. But the, the other thing I, I want to say is that this thing, Stephen, you mentioned that the draft ended in 1974. Like, it's like all about the wrong lessons learned from Vietnam. The lesson they didn't learn from Vietnam wasn't to not intervene in other countries, right? The, you know, there's the famous Vietnam syndrome where the, the idea is that America was the one hurt by Vietnam because Americans would be fearful of, of, of intervening in another country again, right? Not that the, the, the cluster bombs that still kill children in Vietnam or the effects of agent orange or the 3 million Vietnamese killed, uh, the, the idea that America would be uh, uh, hesitant to engage again in such a conflict, which, of course, we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so the lesson learned was that you got to detach the American people from the war. So in 1974, they stopped the draft. And I think, John, you are 100 percent correct. That does make it totally uh, a, a detached from the American people. And thus, they don't protest the wars. We don't I mean, we did have protests for the Iraq war, but. 
people aren't out in the streets, but you know, protesting the war in Yemen at any significant level. I mean, it's the worst, one of the worst things that America is doing, but we're not seeing mass demonstrations because Americans don't die in these wars. Uh, and I think Nixon, uh, Nixon started it by ending the draft, this detachment, but think about how much warfare has been totally detached from the average American start with the fact that wars are not fought in the United States you know, ever, you know, the, save a few wars, the, you know, the, the native American wars were all fought on like what we call the frontier uh, as they, as the United States was conquering their territory, the civil war, of course, we could cite war of 1812, even that's complicated. The United States <laughs> invaded Canada, <laughs> but you know, wars are far away. They're in far away places. And I, I'm going to, John and I, another disagreement we have is uh, I think John is a little more positive in Obama on Obama than I am. Yeah. Obama was freaking masterful, though, when it came to distancing the American people from war. You know, the switch to drones, special forces, proxy forces in Syria, in Yemen, in Libya. Americans don't die in these wars anymore. I mean, I, I sh- that sounds cold because Americans do die in, this, in these wars, but the numbers are just they're not what they were in Vietnam, you know, 6,700 or so American troops killed in the war on terror, throwing the contractors. We're still talking less than 20,000 people. Uh, And, you know, that's horrible. But then look at the tolls from the other countries though. And, you know, Obama was freaking masterful at, at distancing the American people from American imperialism. And I I just, my, my problem with the draft is it's, it seems like a bottom up solution to ending American wars. And, but, and I totally agree that American people do need to be made aware of the wars, but I would start at the top, you know, like uh, politicians need to be aware of the act. Like I, I would fully support some kind of program where American politicians have to go to the bombing sites of, you know, where they, where uh, Americans have dropped bombs and see children's dead bodies, you know, and, you know, I just don't like the bottom up kind of uh, philosophy of reinstituting the draft. So I'll, I'll stop with that and <laughs> one can react. John, you can read, obviously you disagree, but no, 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 uh, I don't, I don't disagree. It just reminded me of this ridiculous uh, moral. I, I can't remember the professor who proposes. It's ridiculous, but I, I feel like I have to mention it. <clears throat> it's like the uh, the nuclear codes. It was like this moral di- dilemma that this professor put forward, where like he suggested that the the nuclear code should be like embedded in a in a person, and the president will have to kill this like knife out of the nuclear code. So that he'll have to come face to face with like killing somebody before killing hundreds of thousands. That's oh, yeah. literally in the show, the leftovers that, uh, Oh, is it? So, yeah. I don't know if you've seen, it's a good show, but it, I that's was just literally an article a few days ago. I, about. I should stop talking because it's a spoiler, but that is <laughs> yeah. way to go. Way to go, Matt. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also kind of like, and I don't know, Stephen, like I know you, you're, you know, you, your newsletters and also the think tank is focused primarily on like, the class perspective of the foreign policy issues. But I, I'm also kind of curious with what Matt's bringing up now. Do you, do you see this as primarily like almost a twofold opportunity, like one opportunity cost with all this spending? Like what are we missing out domestically because we're spending so much? And secondly, like it's not, it's not that making us any safer spending this much. And that element of class in America that like people of the working class of America are missing out. Or are you kind of looking at it as well, like what Matt's bringing up of like, there's also people abroad that are obviously getting either killed or severely affected by our policies, usually working class people in these other countries that are getting affected by our policies. 
Um, so I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are on that in terms of both what, what your aim is with the think tank, but also generally, like, how is this also affecting working class people abroad? Um, so the think tank was started in Beirut, Spry was, um, with just me and a couple colleagues from grad school. We were studying it like full time as students enrolled in the American University of Beirut. So the discussions that we had and sort of the classes that we chose on U.S. foreign policy was no longer sort of like interpreting U.S. foreign policy anymore. It was like interpreting domestic policy because we were in a place where mm. the effects of U.S. Yeah. foreign policy are felt. So it's the working class. I do mean the global working class, but I communicate my message specifically to the U.S. working class because that's because I'm an American, I'm trying to like, we need a mass movement for this thing to give any sort of policy idea teeth. Um, so I do sort of have like that international perspective in mind when I write this stuff. So I don't want to like ever be in a situation where I write something where, oh, this would be good for the U.S. working class, right. but not good for... Yeah, yeah, the working class in Lebanon, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq. So I do view like empire as sort of a destructive force and sort of the endless wars as a natural outcome of U.S. empire. So that's sort of my focus when I when I talk about you know a, a class approach to defense spending. I'm saying we not just cut it, but convert those public funds to do something else, right? That that's in service. Um, I think the logical origins are out of concern for the global working class. Yeah, and it's just like, okay, how do I how do I figure out a way to communicate what is really sort of a deeply held moral personal belief that's rooted in experience for me, and how do I blow it out to make to like incorporate everyone into the conversation at least like methodologically? Yeah. you know. Yeah, do you see any like per like personally see any direct effects from your time in Beirut about like I don't know, like um, people that you spoke with having direct effect? You know, it's odd. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of refugees there, yeah, from Palestine and then also from Syria, and it depending on how the extent to which you you sort of uh, blame the refugee crisis or pin the refugee crisis from either on the U.S., which would be for Palestine a lot and then for Syria also a lot but not quite as much. So uh I sort of lost track of the question. Can you remind me what it was? <laughs> yeah, just wonder if you if you, you know, we we're talking about how US foreign policy affects the working class of other countries. Right. Just wonder if you with your time in Beirut like have seen any of these effects uh firsthand or or know folks who who talk about US foreign policy in, in Beirut in particular. Uh, okay, so that's why I brought up refugees. Okay, yeah. so refugees one, but the second part is like sort of more like in the day to day life. So the U.S. provides a lot of aid to Lebanon, like hundreds of millions, but especially since two thousand six, the aid to Lebanon has been mostly military aid in counterterrorism. So this is an example of like, oh, you can say, okay, so security cooperation has led to a lot of like tragic fuck ups, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, where it's like, okay, corruption, missing soldiers, you know, hundreds of billions missing, 
ineffective fighting force. Lebanon's an example of where it's like nothing really went wrong with it, but it's just detached from the security that you interact with Lebanese or anyone there that like, okay, terrorism is a concern. However, in terms of like violating Lebanese sovereignty, what we're looking at is Israel violating Lebanese sovereignty every day with the most recent track record of bombing the shit out of the country in 2006. So it's sort of detached on that level in terms of like military aid. It's like, okay, so we're providing counterterrorism aid, but not one more relevant to Lebanese sovereignty. And also on sort of a more fundamental level, like, the security threats in everyday life are 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 maddening, boring, bureaucratic, like dealing with you know corruption in government, low wages, um, non-existent labor laws, that sort of thing. So it's like hundreds of millions in security aid. It's like for who exactly? Mm-hmm. Like it produces marginal benefits, but like in terms of the Lebanese population as a whole, it's like wouldn't this aid be better spent? Wouldn't it be better to delegate it to civil society groups and say, okay, we need it here. So that was basically sort of like my interaction with it. Um, it was, it, the, there were like conversations I remember, but it was more sort of just like this everyday feeling of when I was looking at how the U S engages with Lebanon, like through these aid programs, it's like, okay, how you're not listening. You might be listening to Lebanese elites, and leaders in the Lebanese armed forces or internal security forces. But I don't see a lot of the conversations that I'm having in day-to-day life here, having really any bearing or reflect or being reflected at all in the U S policies I'm observing here. Right. And of course that military aid connects directly back to what you write about. Someone's benefiting from that military aid, you know, they're buying what particular companies are, are benefiting from it. And, you know a lot more about Lebanon, obviously, than we do, but it's my understanding uh, that the same dynamic plays out in Afghanistan and Iraq and in all these places the United States devotes aid to. It's it's a foreign policy that is totally oriented around militarism. So I, I'm personally wondering, and John, you can answer this too, like because often the slur, and I'm going to call it a slur, is is uh, thrown at people like us who I assume you kind of feel like us that we need to withdraw from a lot of these conflicts and, and uh, of course, uh, not be intervening in other countries. This slur of isolationism gets uh, thrown at people like us who are who, who are ask, basically asking for us to have a less violent foreign policy. And, you know, I, what I respond with is like, we're not trying to we're not trying to isolate the United States. The exact op- we are isolating ourselves by doing this, you know, we're, you know, we don't take part in international treaties. We violate international law all the time. We withdraw from the climate accords, you know, United States doesn't take part in the international criminal court. Uh, That's isolationism. Uh, And I I just want to know, like, and I know this wasn't on the list, like how would either of you respond to that claim of like, well, withdrawing, uh, you know, if we stop giving military aid to Lebanon or we stop training the Afghan military, like, how do you, how can you be such an isolationist? You know, we learned our lesson from isolationism before World War II, which itself is a dubious claim. But uh, yeah, so how would either of you respond to that claim, of the accusation of isolationism? Stephen, you want to take a stab at this one? Sure. I'll, I'll I would say that. <laughs> Great. Yeah, please do. Uh, I- 
I would say, like, first off, the isolationist slur is as old as like the 1930s. So mm-hmm. this has been going on for a while. This was like in the sort of like meeting rooms of uh, Council on Foreign Relations, which is a think tank that's just old as dirt. They like during World War II were planning on creating a UN, but had to cultivate the political support at home. So they sort of developed this narrative between isolationist that led to the outcome that they're now experiencing during World War II purportedly versus, you know, the true internationalists, the one who are, uh, you know, taking a, not advantage, but, you know, responsible leadership to, you know, a global crisis. I, I mean, I would say the biggest flaw though in contemporary times is, is mistaking isolationism with militarism, as Matt said, it's, it's, we're, we're not, arguing for you know a complete disengagement from the world to become like you know hermit kingdom it's we're we 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 see the u.s as a, a very strong state which it is internationally um but just completely wasting you know every sort of positive benefit we could have on the world it's sort of i mean it is sort of like an extension of of the budget it's like we mm-hmm. want public funds to remain public funds we just want them used for something else so it's not like it's not like we're just you know libertarians that are you know hiding in a basement somewhere you know saying we should completely cut ourselves off we should stop spending money you know it's like no it's like just we're interested in using our time more effectively (laughs) that's it and money too (laughs) and money more effectively yeah yeah i think um I mean, I think I might just be reiterating some stuff, but like, it's just, it's curious to me that the proposal to stop military intervention is equal to isolationist. I think like kind of what you're saying, Stephen, with our, our allocation to the defense budget and how much we spend kind of informs the solutions we take. Like everything now looks like a military solution. Like every foreign problem, it seems is offered very quickly a military solution as opposed to some type of diplomatic relation, some type of negotiation, something like that. And, you know, it kind of echoes again back to what we were talking about before during the debate. Like, it's never really like, how, how are we going to peacefully negotiate um, with other countries? How are we going to maintain peace? It's like, how can we use our, our military to ensure that America is in a position of power at all times, everywhere? <laughs> and I think the you know, it, it's just curious to me that Matt, that slur, as you would call it, the isolation of slur is thrown around again, not even talking about, uh, you know, kind of what you're, what you're talking about, Stephen, being a hermit kingdom, but just simply like looking for other solutions that aren't military solutions. Yeah. And I'll just throw in, it relates to what Stephen said in the beginning. It's like where, kind of we take World War II to be the lesson, the absolute wrong lessons out of World War II, right? So it's like the, it's the isolationism thing where every situation is analogous now to uh, Hitler invading Poland and, and uh, Chamberlain uh, it, uh, kowtowing to him in Munich. And even that's more complicated. Uh, but now we just, anytime there's a threat, whether it's like the USSR, uh, uh, it's, 
uh, you know, uh, involvement in Cuba to, you know, the United States reacting to Saddam Hussein's uh, invasion of Kuwait. Uh, it's always invoking this, you know, you don't want to be an isolationist. You got to confront Hitler. And you mentioned in the beginning, uh, Stephen, where you said that the comparisons of, I think you said Kim Jong-un to, to Hitler. It's just like, how long are we going to hold on to this not even accurate version of what went on before World War II? This, you know, even the, like the thing about, I, I think uh, Andrew Basevich, the book, uh, John and I, you, uh, what's the greatest wars for the America's war in the greater Middle East. Yeah. He talks a lot about like, that's not even true that America was isolationist before World War II. America that was occupying Nicaragua and Haiti and had invaded Mexico and, and occupied it. It's like, what we're asking for is a foreign policy that literally every other country on the planet has, right? Like to significantly withdraw from military conflicts, to demilitarize our foreign policy and have it be more diplomatic. Um, and, you know, I, sorry, I, I get hung up on that word because it just annoys me so much. Like it's just it totally does not take into account what the word means and where we actually are in our terms of our, inter, our international relations. Yeah, what, is, what is that? Godwin's law? How fast Hitler can come up in a debate or something like that? Is that something like that? Um, so, you know, we we're kind of talking about around this issue. You kind of mentioned uh, toward the middle of this discussion cutting in half the defense budget. And that would just get rid of some of the waste, right? We're not even talking about um, any serious cuts, just cutting in half. But in terms of like actual policy reform, like what do you think needs to happen? Like what would you suggest in terms of policy reforms? What policies need to go through so that we have a kind of more sane level of defense spending and um, a more sane role in terms of interventions abroad? Yeah, I'm glad you linked the two between intervention and spending because, I mean, people talk about the 2001 AUMF, the 2002 AUMF, and those are really important. But at the end of the day, what gives U.S. foreign policy life as the militarized force that it is are the budgets that make those policies possible to implement and to do it on sort of a global scale. I think just sort of basic stuff getting started is is sort of what i mentioned earlier for the squad and yep. I, I think it'll have to start with the squad because i think those those are the people who have found a new way to have their campaigns funded where they can really kind of throw they don't have to play by the rules i mean once you eschew uh defense spending as a source of campaign revenue you basically become neo Right. It's like you just see ones and zeros. You just see past all of the bullshit very, very quickly. Right. And it also just frees you to just basically say whatever you want. It's like, I mean, I don't think you would have the same conversation with someone from Brookings or CSIS or Center for American Progress or any of these other think tanks. And I think part of that's related to, I mean, I think part of it just like having interacted with some of those people like, I'll reserve the adjectives for later <laughs> conversation, but, but, uh, but I, I do sort of attribute it to funding or at least like when I say this stuff, you know, I'm serious because category like grassroots yeah. funded, that's yeah. it. I think on day one, it, it really has to be um, about first addressing the institutional problem of members of Congress taking cash from the defense industry. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the first basis. And I think the second 
is you want to introduce legislation that both spells out the problem of how big it is, but also produce something that is achievable for the current moment, but is still meaningful. So what I'm thinking now is like, I mean, I'm still writing this policy paper, but like uh, sneak preview. This is what oh. this is what you know. I get you know what you guys get when you invite <laughs> me on. You know, sneak preview behind the scenes is that I'm basically I'm probably just going to put together two recommendations where one is sort of this sense of re- resolution and sense of resolutions don't really do anything, but they outline sort of the general sense of Congress and they're good for laying out just how fucked up the you know military spending is. And Barbara Lee introduced a sense of revolution of the same exact kind I'm talking about not too long ago or like within the past year. So we do have within the legislative record, 350 billion laid out, which is how much Barbara Lee identified. The only caveat that I would change is I would just smush Ilhan Omar's Afghanistan withdrawal amendment with that to get you to 370 because Barbara Lee's amendment only has half of an Afghanistan withdrawal Mm. in it. So I just doubled the savings by adding Ilhan Omar's amendment, which gets you to 370, which is half of 740 billion. So I don't think that would pass, but it is so fucking important to get that message out there to get it on the legislative record updated yearly. And for the actual thing that's deployed last year or for fiscal year 21, which is what we were just voting on, um, there was a 10% amendment uh, yeah. or amendment to reduce military spending by 10% and convert it to social spending. I would move it up to 20%. And I would also include in the bill, the trade-offs, like yeah. the explicit trade-offs. Cause all the, I, the text of the amendment only sort of dispelled information that was, or communicated the fact that these are deranged federal spending priorities where, and it tells you what the bill does, which is good. I would add to that, okay, uh, we're talking if this money is invested into healthcare instead of defense, right. it would produce over a million jobs. So basically, you know, I'm trying to like, I'm not explaining this well, but I want to write the, the amendment in such a way where newspaper or like editors at newspapers have an option to say, your, your representative voted against creating over a million jobs. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Or just trans or just translating into like UBI checks, you know, yep. 1200 or or like stimulus checks. Just so there's something there in like the bill itself that newspaper reporters are going, "Oh, great." Because all they all they read with that original amendment was just a cut to defense. Mm. They considered that they they listed the priorities thing, but this doesn't make good headlines. Right. We have to like really spell out like what is going on and what we stand to gain right. and what what it means where uh for a member of congress to vote against it so at that point the member of congress is who vote against it is saying oh here's my sort of like vague national security reason and then it becomes that right. versus the electorate's security concerns which are i mean healthcare, climate right. housing yep not having a fucking job or money, it, it becomes very, very complicated for those members of Congress to latch on to this national security myth. Um, so I, I think those, I think that's the way I would sort of write the legislation just to give it maximal effect. Um, and 
I, I think honestly, a lot of it is about changing an institution. Like we just frankly need a better Congress. Yeah. Like, I don't know how y'all feel about like, I mean, if Biden wins, like relief is not one of the feelings I'm going to feel. I might feel it for a second, but then it's like, okay, now we seriously have to confront this sort of. Well, that's one of our liberal forms. Yeah. Yeah. That was something that, okay. Yeah. And, and ending the rant now. No, no, that was great. No, that was great because like, yeah, we just really quickly, we were talking like our last podcast before the election, like, does it really matter? Like, does it really matter that much in terms of like foreign policy, defense spending, who gets elected? Because our Congress is so dysfunctional. And it's, it's funny, you know, especially, uh, I, th- I think uh, this was in your newsletter talking about the CARES Act during Corona and like some of that money going to def- the defense industry um, and how screwed up all of the priorities are. But it's great that you kind of mentioned these policies because Matt and I are always bitching about things, but we're all like solutions. <laughs> We got to come up with some solutions here, but we literally have an episode of like, get, you know, the claim, like people will say to you, uh, so what you complain so much, but what's your solution? And I, I, I think John agrees with me. It's like, first of all, it's not on me to come up with a solution just cause I'm pointing out the problem, but we, you know, we, we haven't, I think it's episode four or five right. or something like that, but it's like, we, there are solutions and you, that's what you do. You're drafting up solutions to these problems. And, uh, but, but, you know, we have an incredibly fucked up situation where, like, if you were to look at the U.S. budget, you would say, the pri- what does the United States prioritize? And I think uh, all of us would agree we do not prioritize the health care of our citizens. We do not prioritize education. We don't prioritize taking care of our most ne- uh, marginalized c- citizens, our most ne- at-risk citizens. We marginalize, we prioritize war. Uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, John. Were, were you trying to finish no. something? No, I think that's, I mean, that kind of sums it up in terms of, you know, the policy recommendations. It's important, I think, and you're right, Stephen, like, the, I think one of the biggest issues is the opportunity cost that this presents, where, like, we're spending all of this money here, where we could be benefiting, especially members of the working class in domestic policy. Right. And, and I should be clear, I'm oh, sorry, just, just one thing, yeah. just real quickly. I mean... It's not necessarily that we need to, to secure like a Medicare for all or Green New Deal. We need more money than the defense budget. Like a lot, like you can achieve it piecemeal. But in terms of like uh, securing funding for those things, getting it from the defense budget is sort of like your last resort. Mm. The first one is is basically saying, look, I mean, and I'm also going to invoke the defense budget here. It's like we can pay for Green New Deal and Medicare for all because we've paid for stuff on credit before, namely every war since Vietnam, right. where it's just been thrown on the credit, the deficit, and it's sort of like, right. I mean, so what's the excuse for Medicare for all? When right. it would save, you know, X number of lives, a Green New Deal would save the planet and create, you know, 10 million jobs or whatever. Right. Yeah. So that, that was the only caveat. Yeah, yeah. So we, we do want to get your opinion on like, do things change with a Biden presidency? Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty pessimistic regarding either candidate. Uh, you know, there's, there's good arguments to be made though on, on, on either side, but I, uh, before we move on, I, I do, you mentioned some think tanks and, uh, this is not a podcast about talking trash or anything like that, but we do kind of want to get an idea of like, who are the think tank? Like, you, you know, your, 
uh, Patreon funded, right? And we'll and we'll definitely plug that at the end of the podcast, and everyone should donate. But we do want to get your take on like what think tanks are the biggest offenders in terms of lobbying, in terms of accepting defense money, and you know, and of course, these think tanks have tremendous influence in Congress. And you know, and you mentioned in the beginning the think. T- I think you had a funny definition. Think tanks are basically a bunch of nerds, and but they get paid a tremendous amount of money, and they get it from somewhere. And uh, we're we're just wondering, like, who are the big? What think tanks do we need to be wary of? And uh, on that same note, what think what politicians are really the most culpable here? Of and I, I you know, we don't need to name a hundred names because I know I know the list is deep. But like, who comes to mind? Which organiz- Which think tanks come to mind? Which politicians come to mind? And and you know, who do we need to be very skeptical of, uh, both of the people and where they're getting their policies from? Obviously, like conservative think tanks like Heritage Foundation obviously take a ton of defense industry cash. But the reason why I don't consider them the most dangerous is because they plug sort of a neoconservative vision, which is just like, actually maybe relevant to Biden considering his record. Mm. But the reason why I'm, I don't pay as much attention to conservative think tanks is the same reason why I don't pay as much attention to conservative politicians, where my focus is sort of on just identifying Democrats who have progressive appeal, but functionally represent Republicans, you know, in terms of actual policy outputs. Yeah. Um, so I think like Center for a New American Security, it's uh, it was... So this think tank was a counterinsurgency think tank when counterinsurgency, like the new one was. Is that Michelle tank? Yeah. So Michelle Ornoy's. Who's going to be in the Biden administration one capacity or another. Yeah. Defense secretary. So to give you an idea, I mean, like she started this think tank, this counterinsurgency think tank. Counterinsurgency went out of fashion uh, in like 2009 or whatever. And you know, she has Pentagon experience already. She was undersecretary of defense for policy under Obama. Uh, Flournoy like started this think tank, raised a bunch of money from defense industry. And basically now this is the shop for like very like technical questions regarding foreign policy. And of course, all technical questions coming from this think tank deny a certain political reality where they're just talking about specifics in terms of how to do, how to wage war more effectively, more humanely, quote unquote. Um, Center for Pro- American Progress is another that was, it's run yeah. by Neera Tandon, who is affiliated very strongly with the Clintons. Um, the problem with that think tank is that, uh, I mean, it is the biggest progressive think tank that there is. And it's sort of like, the hallmark, you know, what you name a progressive think tank and you say center for American progress. I mean, the levels of defense spending they're suggesting are on pace with establishment. I mean, a couple years ago, I mean, yeah, a couple years ago, they wrote a paper on the $700 billion solution to Trump's like $718 billion budget request. You know, it's it's like, what the hell are you guys doing? And the annoying part about that we were talking about conversions from like defense spending to social spending center for American progress will use that same sort of language, but then they'll say, Oh, well, they'll basically restrict it to trade-offs within the department of defense. 
within the DOD budget. So their main complaint with Trump is that he defunded the National Guard or parts of the National Guard. And this was like, they wrote an entire report on it. And then two months later, the National Guard was shooting protesters after George Floyd, buzzing protesters with helicopters in DC. So it's like, okay, what is the value of your discourse at this point? Um, So, and Center for American Progress, I mean, the only benefit is that they were a very useful model for me in terms of developing my own think tank of everything I didn't want to be. Like, they were the ones where it's just like, I hate everything about this organization. I'm going to do everything the opposite because I feel like it it would be helpful. In terms of politicians, again, I mean, like Democrats and Republicans take roughly the same rate, but I pay attention to Democrats because it's my party. You know, I'm a you know registered Democrat. And I think in order for us to make any progress on military spending, it won't be through a bipartisan resolution. It won't be. You might have Republicans on board who might want to cut defense, but they won't want to do the second half, which is converted to social programs, which is hot, which is how we cultivate public interest in it and public support for defense cuts in the first place. So the most powerful person right now in terms of defense spending and also in terms of foreign policy is the chairman of the House Armed Services, Adam Smith. Every think tank representative that he's called to witness at a hearing this year is from a think tank that accepts defense industry cash. And for his part, I mean, once the defense budget, I've done this already, but I've like plotted out how much like each member of Congress takes from the defense industry. Uh, if you do just House Democrats, Adam Smith, the chairman, he breaks every chart, just inordinate amounts of cash, like $380,000 to his campaign just this year, so far this year. It's wild. Yeah. So he's in an extremely powerful leadership position. He uses uh, he uses progressive discourse, which I just find dishonest and not straightforward. It's like just be honest, you know. And I, I think I just I hate when militarism is is greenwashed, pinkwashed, whatever sort of color wash you want. <laughs> but I just I just can't roll with that. I mean, it, and I see it poisoning the Democratic Party. So, I mean. I know I'm going to do like a similar study where I compared votes to how much they compare they uh, members of Congress uh, received from the defense industry. And I'm only going to look at Democrats. and I know I'm going to get shit for it. But one, you know, they probably haven't donated to my think tank. And two, I mean, it's my party and I view it more more as a problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and you raise uh, Adam Smith. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's the poster boy for this. And, but also it's, you can trace these, these vote, you, you these votes, uh, you know, we had the recent resolution where you mentioned the Russian bounties thing uh, at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, shortly after that, there was a vote to make the withdrawal from Afghanistan conditional. Of course, it was a bipartisan resolution between Jason Crow and Liz Cheney. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's like this bipartisan thing is is very overrated. And, and uh Finally, like you mentioned near attend and it's like the, the CA uh, Center for American progress is just it. They're imperialist in their orientation near attendance, literally caught by a, I forget the exact quote, but she WikiLeaks published one of her emails where she's basically saying, not basically, she is saying this is after the United States destroyed Libya. Well, they have a lot of oil. Is it so much to ask? <laughs> it, it, 
that we can have some of the oil. And all you have to do is Google WikiLeaks and near a tent and uh, I'll include that in the show notes, but it's, it's just brutal. And it's, it's something to the effect of, well, American people might be less willing to engage in the world if we have to make spending cuts. You know, what you're talking about before, like, you know, where the spending is not reflected, the average American doesn't feel the spending. So, of course, her line of thinking is like, well, either either we have to cut social spending or cut military spending. And, of course, the, the latter is not acceptable to her. So she says, Libya is a rich country in oil. Is it so much to ask? of them to give us their oil, you know, after you destroyed their country. Uh, so it, it's just symptomatic of the entire, uh, the entire industry and the think tank. And uh, we, can we extend it to the military, uh, military industrial complex that includes Congress, the media, and of, co- of course the think tanks, I think that'd be more appropriate. Yeah. yeah. It runs deep, man. I mean, this cash, I mean, it, it we observe it as sort of like a functional output, but it, it very much guides how it's recycled. It guides how we get to ever increasing military budgets. You know, even when Democrats controlled the house, I mean, over the last two years, they voted on Trump's military budget after crying that he's an authoritarian. It's like, so you're going to plus up, you know, over a hundred billion since Obama's last budget to a guy you say is an authoritarian. And I mean, Authoritarians like their military budgets, so it's just hypocrisy runs deep. For sure. And we want to, you know, speaking of think tanks, again, we want to well, thank you for, for kind of plugging a hole in terms of think tanks being for kind of a progressive U.S. foreign policy, because there's not many. So, so we definitely want to thank you for that. And we are uh, out of time here. So Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again. Stephen Semler, the co-founder of the Security Policy Reform Institute and also a writer on his blog, Speaking Security. Definitely subscribe to that. And please support him. We absolutely appreciate talking about funding and the importance of it, that uh, you don't accept any corporate donations. So it's really, yes, really important. Yeah, really important yeah, yeah. to support him on Patreon. So patreon.com slash SPRI, SPRI. Um, definitely donate uh, to Stephen's uh, think tank there. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. No, thanks. Yes, Anytime we'd love to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, Stephen, is there any other work you would, I know we mentioned your think tank, we mentioned your, your newsletter. Is there anything else you'd like to promote to us? Anything we should be reading? Uh, anything else of, of yours that we should check out? No, I mean, all my writing is uh, basically through the think tank and through the Substack, stevensemler.substack.com. Uh, um, but I mean, as far as stuff to look forward to, we'll have sort of like a basically an outline of legislative priorities for, you know, the 116th Congress, i.e. the next one starting in January. Um, and also another probably corruption piece. I mean, yeah, just we got some cool stuff coming. And uh, I mean, once once we sort of know for sure what's happening with the election, we'll have uh, a game plan ready for the new reinvigorated anti-imperialist left. Nice. So I guess that, that's a good place to end. So we'll have you back on, you know, depending <laughs> who's president in January. Uh, Cause we do want to get your take on like a Biden presidency. Like what, what should people who are anti-imperialists like ourselves be looking for and what should we be doing? And, and especially, you know, you're the policy expert. So we, we definitely want to get your take on like how people should organize and what they should be pushing for. Listen to uh, Matt, just assuming you want to be back on, listen to the, 
already said I wanted to be back on. Oh, so, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's, so that's we get enough listeners, yeah. we'll pay you to be on. And if you can have a beer, too. <laughs> no, you guys are doing good work. And um, I've listened to a few podcasts, and I really enjoy what you guys are doing. And as long as you have a love for it, I think it's really important to keep on doing. So please do. Awesome. Again, Stephen, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure.